delighted to uh, introduce uh, Lavia Karim, who's the pre professor and head of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Oregon. Lamy is a cultural anthropologist working on women, work, neoliberalism, state, the state, NGOs, and Islam in Bangladesh and South Asia. She has over 25 years of research experience and has conducted multiple research projects on women and development. Her research has been widely published in peer-reviewed journals, edited volumes, blogs, and op-eds. Her pioneering research on work, gender development, state microfinance, and religious movements has received major national awards and grants from the National Science Foundation, the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation, the Fulbright Fellowship Program, the Wenner Grand Foundation for Anthropological Research, and a faculty fellowship at the Institute of Labor Studies at Humboldt University in Berlin. Her first uh, monograph, Microfinance and Its Discontents, Women in Debt in Bangladesh, uh, was published in 2011, is a study of gender, grassroots, globalization, and neoliberalism in Bangladesh, and looks uh, critically at the Grameen Bank and three of the leading NGOs in the country. And as a 2018-2019 OHC uh, faculty research fellow, Professor Kareem worked on her second monograph, Cast Off of Capital, Work and Love Among Garment Workers in Bangladesh, which was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 22, received the University of Oregon's Provost Book Publication Award in 23, and other awards. Oh, the Honorable Mention. The Honorable Society Mention. Society of Cultural Anthropology. Um, she's going to tell us about Cast Off of Capital today. So please join me in welcoming you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'll try to live up to that. Um, so I'm going to pass my book around for those of you who haven't seen it, and you can pass it around this way. Um, and what I'm going to do today is I'm going to do it in uh, kind of two parts, and I'm going to weave back and forth. One is uh, to sort of like a spoken word, where I'm going to tell you about what brought me to this project, right? Because ethnography, what is, which is the signature methodology for cultural anthropologists or anthropologists in general, is a form of storytelling and crafting a story out of a multiple events and, uh, that are occurring out in the world. And our, so what I want to do is I want to tell you how that story came into being into this book. And then I'm going to also read some sections from the book. And so that's why I'm saying I'll be going back and forth. Um, first, I want to tell you a little bit about um, what brought me um, to this book. The, I started it in, the research was uh, staggered over six years. Um, and I realized midpoint that what I was doing was to look at trade union activism among uh, garment workers in Bangladesh, that that was not the story I wanted to tell. That was not the most interesting stories because it has been written about a lot. And I didn't want to be the umpteenth person saying the same thing. There's not too many original things you can say. Um, so it was around that time, midpoint in those uh, staggered six years, that I changed direction. And, and I'll tell you how that happened. So this is a little bit from my book. So during my research, I found that there were very few women over the age of 35 working in the factories. 
trade union leaders and the more than 100 workers I met told me that female factory workers over the age of 35 are rare. Factory management confirmed that older women workers leave due to changes in life circumstances, which is a disingenuous statement since most of them are forced out when deemed to be less productive workers. I found that no institution, the state, the APEX organization of uh, factory owners in Bangladesh, the Labor Studies Institute, the International Labor Organization, ILO, and labor rights NGOs was concerned with tracking these women, these older women who have left the factory, uh, once they cease to be formally in the labor market, right? Uh, so when I asked a long-time labor activist about what happened to older workers once they exit the you know, formal uh, labor market, she said, that is a good question. We do not track them once they leave the factory. Um, so this is um, a very interesting point for me where I kind of started to think that this is where I want to take the story. This, the, this is the unwritten part, the lacuna in the research. And then I, when I was at Humboldt and I was talking to these um, uh, historians, heavyweight German Marxists, uh, <laughs> and they told me, go ahead and write that. That's what hasn't been written about even in you know, the historical uh, archive. Um, so what is this book about then? Uh, at that time, I make a turn and I start to look for older women workers. Now, they have already exited the factory, and it's very hard to find them because they have disappeared into the informal market. Uh, most of them have left uh, the slums around the factory because those are more expensive, and they've gone away. Nobody keeps track of them, or they've returned to their villages. And it was very hard to track them down. Or once you track them down, to know they would be there because they have a cyclical relationship with their villages. So they're here in the city working now in the informal sector. When money runs out, they go back home. Or maybe somebody falls sick, they go back to take care. And then they may come back but go to another part of the city. So that was a, quite a, a difficult task. But I was able to do it. and I. I, I enjoyed it. And I'll tell you one thing, the, what the women, it's, the book has a lot of uh, interviews with women, their life stories. It's, about, it's based on life cycles of older women. Um, they told me to tell their stories. They were very clear. She said, I want you to tell our stories. I want you to tell the people who buy our clothes mm -hmm. about our lives. And I hope I've been able to do that. That was my, that was their charge to me. Um, so, this story then was inspired by the raw and powerful stories of workers' encounters with capitalism. And the book uh, introduces a new dimension to the making of a precariat, female-headed workforce in Bangladesh that numbered approximately 4 million in 2018. This is when the turn takes in my research. Um, it focuses on the lives of garment workers with a special emphasis on older and what I call aged, aged out female workers. I examine the relations between work, gender, and age on the one hand, and these factory women's search for the good life of love and care against the backdrop 
of neoliberalism and industrialization. So they're sort of like two different kinds of things that converge on their lives. Um, this book is also informed by the scholarly works of uh, anthropologist Carla Freeman on neoliberal aspirations. Freeman has worked in Barbados, and she talks about how among what are pink-collar workers uh, in uh, Barbados, they have a new um, sense of upward mobility through neoliberalism and what she calls a swirl of excitement. Right? Of course, it's far more toxic than that, right? But people get caught up in uh, this whole idea of moving up. And that, you know, the ladder is there, it's no longer invisible. But if you know about this upward mobility ladder for poor uh, members of the, uh, you know, uh, community, it's a broken ladder. You can just go up so far and then the ladder is not there anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's what I found also in the lives of these women. And the other concept is uh, Lauren Berlant on cruel optimism, which is the idea that um, are we, pe most, I mean, <coughs> many of us become very attached to something, you know, whether it's a person or a commodity or, or an ideology that actually harms us. And she was talking in the context of the United States, right? It damages you, but even then, it's so seductive that you go there. And I found these two things, these two theoretical frames of the aspirations, okay, now I'm working in a factory. I, you know, I have money, I didn't have money. You know, and I can send my kids to school. I couldn't send them to school versus I'm falling in love with this person or I'm a factory worker, the, you know, I feel good about myself. And then you go into these relationships and they turn very toxic. So it is how I framed it. I don't want to go to theory here um, uh, because it's uh, not that kind of a talk. I want to have an engaged talk with you. So a Google Scholar search with the words Bangladesh garment industry in uh, 2022, early part of 2022, returned over 34,000 scholarly articles, right? It's an industry that is constantly being written about. But what is missing here is uh, these women's life stories. It's, they're seen as cold statistics. They're seen as flat subjects, that they're one-dimensional in a way, that they are full human beings, right? They have humanity. They are, yes, they're workers, but they're also mothers. They're also sisters. They're also lovers. They're also political agents, right? They want to change their circumstances through activism. None of those things are really spoken about in a way that would show you their full humanity. And that's what I thought was very important to say. If you want to understand why workers do certain things, why is it that they you know, engage in a strike or uh, at the factory level, but, and left political leaders go there and say, oh, the revolution is here. And uh, then the next day they're paid off and they've gone back to work, right? So there is always this disconnect. And someone like me who comes from the left, and I am so disenchanted with it. So I also wanted to understand how do you mobilize? And in order to do that, you have to understand who they are, right? And that was what I, tried to do in my book. Um, another thing is a 
you should know, if you don't, is that Bangladesh is the largest producer of apparel for the global market after China, um, ahead of Vietnam, Cambodia, and Sri Lanka. It grew very fast within a very short time. So, um, you know, what you find is that these are very young rural women between the ages of um, average age of 15 and they're exiting the marketplace in around the time they are between 35 to 40, right? So it's a short span of work life. They can still work, but they're not, no longer considered uh, productive. Um, so what I wanted to look at when I'm thinking about these uh, women is they're more than, as I said, statistics. They're thinking, acting subjects. These women navigated their lives by making choices within a limited social world, right? It's not unlimited. It's a limited social world. Uh, they sought the good life, and that was one thing they said many times in Bengali, which is my language also. It would be Shundor Jibon, right? I am searching for a Shundor Jibon. They said um, that it was about improvements in the material conditions in their lives, better diet, housing, and education for their children. That would lead to upward mobility, going back to uh, Freeman's idea of neoliberal mm -hmm. optimism. Um, then here was this one moment when, again, as, a, as an ethnographer, you l listen to people, not only what they're saying, but in the context in which it's said, right? We look at the history, we look at the social world in which certain things can be said, other things cannot be said, what is not being said. And this really stunned me into silence uh, because I was talking to this woman, older woman, and she told me, you're the first person who has asked me about my private life. Okay, she, for her, I was the first person. Maybe other people have asked other, because I was asked this question at the talk. How do you know? After four million people, some other person, I said, yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? But you get these kinds of questions. So here uh, she said to me, for more than eight hours a day, I stitch clothes. My body embraces the sewing machine. At night, an emptiness enters my life. There is no embrace waiting for me. And if you look at the lives of these women, uh, older, even the younger women, you find a, a high level of marital abandonment. And I can ask, in Kivene, I can tell you why am I using the word abandonment versus divorce. It's abandonment. Their husbands leave them at some point. They don't formally divorce them. Uh, but you know, many of them remarry. Uh, so that's a good thing, perhaps. Um, so this is what I started then thinking in terms. That's why it's called work and love. Because I think those are different aspects of their being. Um, I also found that there was no clear demarcation between these women's work life and their life after the work day. Uh, their life stories kind of disrupt this distinction between the private and the public, right? That they are merged, they're together, you cannot separate them. So in order to tell the work of the laboring person in the on the factory floor, you also have to understand what is happening when the person has gone home. So I take all these as aspects into uh, you know, uh, account. Uh, cost of capital is about these multiple levels of betrayal. 
against these working class women by factory owners defrauding them of wages, by Western buyers enforcing rock bottom pricing that keep wages very low, by the state, trade unions and political parties manipulating them as pawns to advance their agendas, and finally by the men in their lives who use them instrumentally for financial and sexual gratification. So it is about the life cycles of garment workers trapped with, between patriarchy and capital, between their aspirations for a better life and the brutal conditions of work, between their desire for romance and the betrayals by the men they fall in love with. It is the, about the lack of sovereignty over their lives. right? So what I want to do next is to give you some um, segments from stories uh, about different women, uh, just to give you an idea of uh, their lives. So the first story that I'm going to tell you is about Halima. Um, here's a direct quote. All my life, I have felt like an orphan. My father remarried after my mother died. So as a child, I lived in my uncle's house where they treated me as a domestic worker. I was the last to get any food and often the food was rotten. I always wanted to go to school, but they never sent me to primary school. By age 15, I was married off. Once I married, I thought I would have a better life. A husband who would care for me, plenty of food and a roof over my head. My husband lost his land to river erosion and we came to the city in 1995 in search of work. Soon I joined a garment factory as a helper at very, you know, Taka 300, which is at that time was only $7.50 a month. Um, a helper is someone who gives buttons and thread to the person who's making the, using the swing machine, the industrial swing machine, right? Um, nevertheless, my husband would take away my wages and I couldn't save a penny. He would often beat me in his anger over my ability to earn money, which he called his own. After the birth of our two daughters, he left me for a younger woman. Unable to take care of my children in the city, I took them back to the village to be raised by my parents. I met Halima, a 45-year-old former garment worker, on a winter evening in Taka. We were sitting at a labor rights office having tea and discussing her work life. Within the four whitewashed walls, whitewashed and drab walls of the office, Halima in her brightly colored sari was like a sliver of sunlight. She was small in stature. When she spoke, her voice was soft and nearly inaudible. Her work life spanned almost 22 years between 1995 and 2017. It was only in the last seven years that she had secured some financial stability. Over the years, she had risen through the ranks to become a senior sewing operator, making around uh, you know, a little over $90 a month. Um, from long-term work though, Halima developed an infection in her lungs that required a lot of money. So whatever she had saved was spent and she got into debt. Now, what did she want for her daughters? She hoped that her daughters would not become garment workers like her. However, facing financial insecurity, the older daughter joined the garment industry at age 16. At the time of her interview, the younger daughter was enrolled in grade 10. I asked Halima, why did she not want her younger daughter to work in a factory? 
She replied that the factory is an inhospitable environment for women. Pointing to her hands, she said, I suffer from constant pain in my hands, headaches, and a general sense of malaise. Once I fainted in the factory, <coughs> sighing, she added, I worked hard, never missed a day of work, so my daughters could have a better life than me. The older one I could not help, but the younger one will hopefully get into government service. So then, just to, you know, run forward, because I want to make sure we have time for, uh, okay, all right, um, for you to ask me some questions. That I had called her back uh, after a year. It was like our third interview with me, her. And at the time, she said that um, her younger daughter had begun working at a garment factory. Halima said, we had run out of money, but my daughter has a grade 10 education, so the neoliberal aspirations are still working, right? And, and, and she may soon become a line supervisor. A line supervisor is someone who supervises the assembly line, and that's considered a management position. Now, what was Halima's hope for her future? She wanted to buy a small piece of land in the village. However, she did not have the cash to purchase the property. Um, she had heard that many workers were going overseas to Mauritius to work in factories owned by Chinese and Indian businessmen, and the pay there was much higher. If she could go there, she would be able to save enough to build her house. She described her dream home as a brick house with a few rooms, piped gas for cooking, and electricity all the accoutrements of modern life she had experienced in the city. There would be a vegetable patch and chickens and ducks in the yard, reminiscent of a rural background. It sounded whimsical and beautiful. The small imaginings that offer women like Halima the resilience to wake up every day to go to work. What remained unsaid was, who would hire a 45-year-old worker? Right, this is Halima's story. So now I want to go to something that's happy because, you know, not, it wasn't just all unhappiness. So this couple I met, um, the younger than Halima, Kajol and Babu, um, it was really a love story. And they also moved me very much because of the love that I saw and between the two of them. So when I first met Kajol, she's the woman, she was 35 years old, and Babu, the husband, he was 41. I was a little late for my meeting. This meeting, like most of these meetings, was scheduled after the workday ended, usually around 7 p.m., when the workers were tired after a long day at work. When I walked into the office, I saw them waiting for me. Their faces had a joyfulness I had rarely seen among the workers I met. Babu looked at Kajal, then turned to me and said, we have heard that you want to talk to married couples in the garment industry. We are here to tell you our story. Then the story was very interesting that uh, they met in the village and um, Babul would compose love poems in his letters, right? And I said, really? Can you share your love poems? It's written in simple language, but I think there's a certain beauty to this. So translated, it is goes this way. Dearly beloved, this is he sent to his now wife, Kajul, at that time his girlfriend. The night is quiet. The sky is lit with heavenly lights. Everyone is asleep in their rooms. But beloved, there is no sleep for me. 
I only think of you day and night. Um, while speaking to me, Kajal and Babul would look at each other with evident fondness and often break into smiles. They said that their life together was beautiful, although they added that they had to struggle to get there. In their married lives, they do not hide anything from one another. They emphasize that they know each other so well that they could never lie. Babul said, better to be truthful. Asked to explain how their relationship worked, Babul said, when I buy fish from the market and I come home with it, I find that Kajol had also bought the same fish. <laughs> it is as though she read my mind. Kajol replied, if I think I want egg curry tonight, I come home and find that Babul had cooked egg curry for dinner. <laughs> we communicate without verbalization. We just know what the other person wants. Our love puts us inside each other's minds. I think it was beautiful. And you know, these stories are very long. I'm just you know, giving you a little uh, snippet from that. And so finally, I want to take you to Monomara's story. And uh, she was 48 years old, so she was older. And she had lost her job. She was a short woman, but a very, she really moved me. Uh, her story and her resilience and her ability to smile even in the face of tremendous precarity. Um, so due to her age, Monwara could not find work at another factory after she was laid off, although she has continued to look for one. At our first interview, she we learned that for the last seven months, she had been living off the money she received. Uh, as severance pay. She knew this money would not last long. Her room rent alone ate up most of it. I'm sort of like paraphrasing as I'm going. I uh, went to meet her in her, in the slum she lived and she lived in this small windowless room, but you know, she was very hospitable and we sat together and we talked and we got bitten by a lot of mosquitoes. <laughs> uh, so that keeps you alert, you know? Um, so I asked, what will you do now? Manwara said, I have not learned anything about tailoring garments from factory work. Assembly line work does not teach you how to make a full garment. We make parts of a garment, like stitching cuffs, hemlines, and so forth. When I started to work at the factory, I just thought about the wages at the end of the month, and that money helped me to live. I had no time to think about my future. Now I do not know how I will live. We were silent for a few minutes, letting her words sink in. She continued, at least I was able to escape the conditions of the rice factory, which is where she worked, where she was in the village. I have worked at a factory, a garment factory for 16 years, yet I have no savings. I don't see much improvements in my life. After a pause, she added, I could not speak easily with strangers before, now I can. I walked alone from the factory to my house. Nobody said anything to me. Nobody touched my body. I could not do this in the village. Factory work gave me courage, I suppose. So Manwara had a spark in her. She smiled even when she was sharing the darkest moments of her life. While it is true that she did not achieve financial security from factory work due to the low wages she received during her work life, she had life experiences that she saw as valuable. Would her life have been any better in the village? 
in all likelihood no. In her, the moral and economic subjectivities were pronounced. She exhibited pride in her work, I will not accept charity, and believed that she could take care of herself. At the same time, she exhibited an aloneness that was extremely heartbreaking in the bustling slum where she lived. She was surrounded by people, noise and the hustle and bustle of city life. But she stood apart like a lone figure walking the streets in search of work. So I'm going to end there. And you can ask me some questions if you want. Or if you want me to read more, I can. First journey and thank you, So we have a bunch of time for questions. I hope there are some questions for yeah, but Liz, why don't you? Oh, yeah, Lamia, uh, you, you mentioned you could say more about marital abandonment. Oh, sure. Um, and, and that question I'm curious about. Oh, that's a very interesting story. So um, what happened to most of these women, um, especially the older women, but even the younger women, uh, that they would get married, especially the women in the villages, they would have arranged marriages. So, you know, the families would... Uh, meet the prospective groom and they would get married. Often, and then after that, it's a, you know, they would move to the husband's house, it's patrilineal society. Um, but after some time, they disappear. They just leave one day, okay? And then, usually after the birth of a daughter. So you're now left with a child, um, a girl child that you have to raise on your own and then your in-laws don't want you in the house because it becomes too much to feed for them. It's the, it's how uh, women's worth is diminished. This is pre-garment work. Then they disappear, sometimes they come back and they will again go back into a conjugal life because the families will ask them to be together. So it could come back in after a year, six years. Sometimes they would often find out that the, spur, the man who had left, the, or the husband, has gone to another village and he had another wife there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so like a traveling salesman. You know, I don't know how you could. So, but you know, this is tremendous kind of uh, violence, of marital violence um, that was going on. And yet, yeah, that's why I was thinking in terms of why cruel optimism helped me. Because no matter how, and these women knew that they were going to be hurt, but they still would go because that embrace, that momentary feeling that I am loved, you know, I'm worth something other than, you know, the workplace um, was very important. But that embrace they were also missing from the, you know, the workplace. They wanted the managers to respect them. They wanted the state to recognize them as, you know, citizens who are helping the GDP, um, because that's where most of the money in Bangladesh comes from. And, but it was, so that was the reason they don't divorce, is if they divorce, they have to pay alimony. So they just disappear. And it's very hard to find them. So in the city, uh, there's another interesting thing that's happening. In the city, the younger women are marrying men they meet at work, either at, on the factory floor or outside, um, you know, friends of other people, because they're now outside their homes, right? They're living by themselves in the city. They walk around, they meet men. And uh, there are many kinds of uh, 
relationships you have. You look at the cell phone, they will say, I have five boyfriends. So the really <laughs> <laughs> I said, why? Yes, okay. I'm old fashioned. But so you know, someone's in Dubai, someone's in Malaysia, someone's somewhere else. And some of them, the younger ones, are also calculating the risks of, you know, who would be the best husband for me, the one in Dubai or the one down the street. Um, and I was fascinated by that because these are new ways of being, right? Earlier in the village society, they were not able to do that. As I was telling you from Onwara's story that she was not able to walk around. Now she can, and that's something every single person told me that they valued so much, I can walk around. Mm -hmm. So uh, for these women, the younger women, they're uh, better educated and uh, they know where to go for um, if something happens with the husband running away or um, they will come to the labor rights union and they have lawyers who will help them, you know, file and petition uh, for a divorce. And so they're a little better off, but even then the private lives are very toxic for most of them, not all of them. So, but one very interesting thing was that the families encouraged these divorces. And I was a bit surprised by that. Uh, and that shows my naivety in the beginning. I'm like, why would they want the breakup? And then I realized it's because once the woman has separated from her husband, he cannot claim her money. The family cannot claim the money. So in that sense, the family is also using them, you know, to get what they want. So constantly, especially with cell technology, nobody can not be in connection, right? They're constantly asking for send money home, you know, repair the roof, send money to for your brother to go to college or go overseas, you know, father's sake, send money. So they always have that demand on them. And, you know, in my research, I interviewed both men and women. I always do that. Um, and also the adult children of these women, male children, because I wanted to understand male attitudes towards working women. These women are industrial labor, right? They have a guaranteed wage at the end of the month. It's different from other kinds of working in the informal uh, market. Um, and, and there was a lot of, in the beginning when the industry started, um, in the late 80s, um, th these women were stigmatized. They were called sex workers. You know, what did they do? Staying so late in the factory, they're working with men and, you know. But um, that narrative has also changed to a great you know, degree that people are now seeing uh, these women um, not so much as, um, you know, like stigmatized women, but women who are doing uh, good work, right? They're, they're, they're development actors. And the word development is used a lot in Bangladesh. You know, it's like the NGO capital of the world. Uh, they're like, you could walk, you know, there are NGOs all over. You can't really walk very far without that. but. Um, what I was trying to say is that, that these women are making uh, choices um, that often, I mean, painful, but they're also making choices that give them happiness at times, right? It's not all sadness, and that is something 
that was very important to me, not to just tell stories of utter sadness, but also their, you know, their love for life, you know, that thing that they were always seeking. Um, I think I've given you a very long answer to a short question. <laughs> Bangladesh is a predominantly Muslim society. It's and now it's ninety percent Muslim, but we are not. We are more. It's syncretic because it's in South Asia and it's not the Islam of the Middle East. And but even then, uh, women were not able to work before, partly because it wasn't industrialized, and the fact that within the pace of 30 years, four million women are working in the factories, right? It's a radical transformation. This is, this is changing society very fast. So if you look at four million women working and you look at their relationships with their uh, families, you're probably looking at change for 20 million people, mm -hmm. right? So I, the reason I looked at uh, the women is because it's about the rapid growth of the industry and um, the radical changes that were occurring in these women's lives. I realized very soon that I, the radical changes were not that radical. Change is very slow. Uh, you know, you always meet that very sassy person who, you know, blows you away, the, like the person who was like saying, okay, who's going to give me more money, you know, uh, calculating all that, which I liked it, I liked it. Men do it all the time, why not? You know, <laughs> so um, that's why I, I wanted to understand, because I work on women's lives and I look at social change and what are the different engines of social change, right? And when I say social change, I don't mean that it's always going in this direction, linear, forward, but it's kind of, you know, curvy, it's disruptive. But I want to understand how to improve the lives of women. Uh, the factory owners prefer women mm. for a number of reasons. And One the factory is, owners are male. Yeah, yeah, yes. most of okay. them. They're oh. men. Okay. Uh, most of the management is male. Mm -hmm. um, but they prefer women because women are, they consider them to be hardworking. They don't make noise on the floor. They are, you know, if you have uh, male workers, they don't listen to you, they take long breaks, they smoke outside with their friends. So they said that it's easier to discipline women. And part of it is because uh, women also think about the welfare of their children, right? They're always thinking about that I have to work, maybe I'll do some overtime work so I can have some more money for my children, where the men are not thinking that way. Um, so that's why you don't, they don't hire that many men. They can also pay less, women less. Men are usually in the sectors that have more heavy lifting. So in the ironing section, you have men, but it's not that many. Uh, one dynamic that I was very interested in was to look at um, the adult male children of these uh, women to understand how they think of their mothers working outside the home in a factory, right? Um, and it was the uh, results were interesting because some of them would say, I will not marry a garment worker. They're bad women. Um, you know, they use uh, us, their young men, uh, you know, teenagers, late teens, early 20s, to see, you know, what we can give them. They are, you know, they're not, they're like, you know, gifts. 
They're materialistic. Mm -hmm. These are the things they were saying then, but they will not marry garment workers. So when I tell them, but your mother is a garment worker, why are you saying that? Oh no, my mother's different. <laughs> my mother worked very hard for us. These people just want things from us. So it's interesting to see how these different kinds of logic, gender logics work, and how people rationalize their, uh, you know, their choices. You're a psychologist. You're studying subtyping. Yeah, yeah. So it, that was very interesting. That you know, if you push them, then it's like they suddenly separate uh, the two. Yes, Lynn. Um, I was struck by what you were saying, and I think this is so important that, you know, 4 million women are yeah. generating change among yeah. 20 million people and many families. So I wondered if you could talk some more about that, and, and particularly how, since you did interview men, mm -hmm. what, other than these, yeah. uh, the offspring, you know, mm -hmm. men, male yeah. adult children of these women, what other perspectives did you see from men? And is it predictable by generation? Or are there, are there other kinds of differences? And, mm -hmm. and I ask, because coming off of some similar work mm -hmm. in a very different environment mm -hmm. in Guatemala, um, but finding you cannot generalize about mm -hmm. men. So what would you, what, what are sort of the different takeaways on their view mm -hmm. of this change in women's mm -hmm. lives and how it affects them and how they Think about it mm -hmm. in different ways and different contexts. Yeah, sure. I won't generalize, but I'll look for patterns. That's yeah, what I look course. for, right? Like that to make some, what, what was the pattern that I was seeing? Um, and it's, it is not always generational. What I found was those men who had grown up in the village, right? And they saw that the mother stayed at home, the father worked outside, they felt that women should work at home. And those men who had lived in the city for a long time, or they were you know, raised in the city uh, by you know, garment worker mothers, um, or they saw it, not, you know, they would say, okay, it's important for both husband and wife to work because you can have a better life. So there were these kinds of differences based on the location. Um, the other thing in terms of the, another pattern was that a lot of anger, they would say, why is it that women are always getting the jobs? Why are we not getting the jobs, right? And one, and I have this issue with, you know, the way development has, um, development agencies, especially Western development agencies work is that they want to liberate women, right? And in, but they forget that the woman is not an autonomous subject, there's a family. So the woman gets, say, the loan in my first book that I was talking about, or she gets the garment factory work, and, but the brother or the husband doesn't. So that is one of the reasons of, you know, why you also have a lot of violence. Because, you know, how do you take out anger? You come home and you take it out on your uh, spouse. Um, there was another thing that uh, a lot of men said that was good is now they can um, have some money to start a business because that's, uh, you know, stable income. Uh, many of them want to go abroad. So uh, that's another thing that they're looking for towards. And, you know, there are women now who are going abroad, single women by themselves, going abroad to work in, you know, 
um, Mauritius and other places mm -hmm. and they're very you know they want to go and their families are allowing them to go mm -hmm. which is very interesting because that those are some of the changes right mm -hmm. she can she's not married let her go you know she's you know she'll make three times of what she's making mm -hmm. here and uh, she's a good woman and the women I don't know if you saw this in your work Lynn they had this moral compass of how they would talk about themselves in a in a sort of a framework of piety, they would say that I'm a good Muslim woman and, you know, I will not do, you know, like I don't beg or steal, I will not do anything that's against my religion. So they use that. Mm -hmm. And I asked them, so do you pray five times a day? They said, no, we can't in the factory. <laughs> that was, you know, sometimes, you know, like, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, just to push them a bit, right, to understand where these things were coming from. But they had a very strong moral compass, you know. And, and another thing that I also wanted to do in this um, book is that often I find a lot of uh, work on women's work, especially in uh, gender studies, to focus on sex work, right? And I, women do a lot of different things, right? And that should come up. Right, it's not sex work that if you want to work and you're poor, no, you can do other things. And again, I think I didn't answer your uh, question. Why are they coming? If most of them are coming because of um, poverty, because of loss of land due to land erosion, you know, climate change, and um, or in some instances, uh, they run away from abusive relationships, and then a few, a small percentage are really interested in seeing the world. They just want to go and see the city. So you find all that. And that's what I think makes the work for me to do the interviews interesting. So I was wondering about um, the emphasis that you put on instrumentalization. Yeah. So you said you know, you. basically they're being instrumentalized by a whole range of yeah. uh, actors and, and institutions. What did they say about that? Did you push them on the fact that no matter what, how they, you know, the various ways that they might uh, assert their agency, they were always being uh, serving some yeah. other as a tool, as an instrument? That was a difficult thing to do. Yeah. And I did ask them that, but only after I had developed enough of a relationship deep relationship and a sense of trust that I could push them on that, that, you know, you know, you're being used, where is, what are the choices you're making? And then they would say, I can't make these choices, but I, I, want, I want to, right? And so they were sort of trapped between hope and hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one I, I, I met a Bangladeshi anthropologist when I was there, and I'm a post-colonial uh, scholar, if I may use that word, um, that I look at, um, I always try to bring in local voices, right? So he mentioned to me, I was talking about why is it that, you know, through all this pain and struggle, you know, what, you know, these women are still there, why don't they just leave the factory? 
And he used this word, residue of hope, that I have used because I wanted to bring him in. Um, and he said that, you know, at the end of the day, there are these structures, familial structures, that even if they're weakening under the onslaught of capitalism, right, it is still there. They have, most of them do have, you know, family back home, um, a sib siblings who might help them when th they fall on hard times. And that's what is also making them go on with their lives and keep on trying for something better. But yes, it is, it's a very hard situation. At the end of it, I wasn't optimistic at all. Mm. And uh, at the same time, I really don't have an answer. Right? There are some factories that are doing better work, uh, uh, that are giving you know, the women better wages, conditions, but they also have daycare, which is a big problem for these women. They have no daycare, mm -hmm. so they go back to the village. And, um, but that's a drop in the bucket. You know? So on the un uh, unhopefulness <laughs> line, um, you mentioned a couple of women that you talked to who were in their 40s and they hadn't found work yet. What what does happen to those women? And then I have another question about age as well. <laughs> sure, sure. But Most of the women before the garment industry who got in there, if they came, they were, you know, similar circumstances, they would end up doing either domestic work or they would help, say, a vendor in the village by, you know, sorting things, right. maybe, you know, it's a stall that sells food, they would do some of that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So most of them would go back into those uh, kinds of uh, jobs or, um, or work. And so there was really no upward mobility. What has really happened is that at a very young age, with low wages, they worked for 20 years. They helped the Bangladesh economy grow. They helped the global market grow, right? Helped in terms of and, and then, yeah, everybody's taking everything. And then they're just back to square one, now with a broken body and all sorts of, you know, health problems, right? And they don't have the resources to take care of that. So it's really, really, if you think about it, it's yeah. Yeah. abuse. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was my other question, and Liz and I were just sort of like, you know, what, what kind of job are you, like, over the hill at 35? Mm -hmm. And you know, gymnastics? I mean, you know, the, and, 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 but then actually you answered that, and it's, it's the toll on their body. Because I was wondering, you know, is there something, again, you know, developmentally that you can't do at 35? And I, I know that, yeah. you know, that, that didn't make sense. But it's not that you're 35, it's that you've been working but poorly hard. Yeah, yeah. You've yeah. essentially been physically yeah, abused yeah, yeah, by yeah, a job. Yeah. So at 35, you've used up. But yeah. it's not that there's something that you're not no, no, quick no, enough yeah, at 35. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. So but the average work span or work life yeah. is about 20 years. Some work 22 years, some I found yeah. who are much older but still working. It depends on the factory and their relationship with the management. If they really find them to be very experienced and good, they might keep them. I mean, the off managers are not bad. They're also human, sure, you know? Sure. Yeah. So, well, they yeah. are, and they're being, you know, the factory owners are saying, yeah. got to look at the bottom line. Yeah, it's, yeah. they even say, you know, it's not our fault. Go talk to your Western <laughs> buyers, you know? And then I will say, let's us all, you know, think about why we walk into, you know, 
Old Navy, wherever, and we just pick up things that are very cheap. Like we never think, yeah. how is this so cheap, right? Yeah. What yeah. went to a forty-five-year-old yeah. woman who doesn't have a job? You know, <laughs> she doesn't. She has a broken body, yeah. and uh, so it's and you know this industry, which maybe I may work on this next, um, is it's one of the most polluting industry, environment, mm. the fashion industry extremely polluting and now you have fast fashion so things are changing every two weeks so the toll on their bodies have gone up because they have to constantly you know move very fast and you have to put in like process six hundred and twenty pieces per hour or something crazy yes I was wondering if um, it is either interesting or important for you to define love in your work I ask as someone who is writing about love. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I personally didn't want to define it, but I can tell you from what the, the women were saying. Um, and this was for them a sense of feeling valued, mm -hmm. that they matter, that their well-being matter. It's, it's um, and that, you know, they were cherished. Mm -hmm. And that's something they didn't get. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I'm not talking about sexual love. Although they did talk about sexual love with me a lot, which was also quite interesting. Did you find a lot of couples, like the one couple who were in love? I mean, who very you could see. Very few. Yeah. Very few. And that's why they blew my mind. <laughs> with the there are lots of poems like that. And when we were talking, and he immediately burst out into a poem. Mm. And I was like, wow, can I, can I, can I write it down? Will you give me permission? Because we have to take permission all the time. And he said, sure. <laughs> so that was nice. And I'm sure there are stories like that. Um, there was another one that was very interesting. A wo young woman who went to Jordan to work. That's another uh, site that they're going to. Um, and she said to me, um, I went there because they were going to pay so much. And she was unmarried and the family encouraged her to go and then she said I when I went I thought I saw all these pictures of beautiful roads and you know nice cars and shiny buildings and I was like wow that world could be mine right it's waiting for me and then she said you know what that world can never be mine I've come back after a year or two years that I, I never went out of the compound where the factory is located for two years. You know, they have everything inside. And so, but she had that recognition. She said, you know, all that stuff can never be mine. But I was seduced by those images. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, that's, there's a lot of sadness, but there's also hope. Because if there was no hope, I couldn't write it, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. so.